the, the main challenge in rhinoplasty is uh, undoubtedly the patient, the patient, and it will it will be until the end. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rhinoplasty Podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. So we're in the month of August and we've got some phenomenal people we're interviewing, all to do with uh, rhinoplasty, obviously, but especially preservation rhinoplasty. And this month, we've got the privilege of having had um, Piezo from Comeg, a French company, have sponsored the podcast. So a shout out to these guys. They make this machine which is obviously used in piezo surgery and tonight we've got the guy who actually is probably the person who knows the most about the machine and Mark piezo on the show and it's a, such an honor and privilege for me to welcome uh prof olivia gobalt all the way from france thanks so much for being part of the show today thank you cam for the invitation i'm really proud uh, and glad to be with you tonight so olivia uh, for the listeners i also want to tell them that at the end of the program, if they listen to all the things you're going to say, I'm going to give out an email address for them to be able to get a 10% discount on the Comic. So guys, make sure you listen right to the end. And this is going to be a great, great interview because I'm, I'm, I want to know about how this whole thing has come apart, about because I can remember for many years being at all these international meetings and hearing one guy who's like preaching and preaching and the people aren't listening. But finally, it looks like people have now realized that this is a, a, a utility that our maxillofacial surgeons have been using for years, and only now are the rhinoplasty surgeons really kind of getting into piezo and all the things that it does. <clears throat> so, Olivia, my first question to you. Tell us a little bit more about you, because I don't want to put you in a box and just say, uh, Olivia and piezo. Tell us a little bit about what you do when you're not doing rhinoplasty. Well, um, First, I'm a, I'm a French plastic surgeon. Uh, I did my plastic residency, plastic surgery residency in Paris. Uh, I began in 1990, and uh, and very quickly uh, I was really interested by by rhinoplasty. In fact, I, I did a lot of microsurgery first, and it was really my patient. I did research on rhino on, on microsurgery, and there are some similarities between the uh, uh, micro surgery and rhinoplasty and uh, and it was such a, a mysterious uh, uh, part of the plastic surgery rhinoplasty for a long time at the beginning of my residency to tell the true scam when, when i when i was a first year resident i read lots of books about what will be my future speciality and the only book that i read from the beginning till the end that i didn't understand at all was a book on rhinoplasty and I said at this time, well, either I, I don't <laughs> try to move forward on it or I have to understand what was. It was in 1990 exactly. And, uh, and at this time, in fact, I had the chance to, to buy the book of uh, Jack Sheen, which was really uh, uh, the, the first way for me to, to understand what, what, what is rhinoplasty. I had this book of, of Sheen and, and also of Gene Tardy. So th those was really the two people who uh, uh, give me the, the, the will of, of uh, understanding more rhinoplasty. But the real, turn, the real turning was when I bought in 1993 the book of Roland Daniel. And Roland Daniel is really uh, someone who changed my life and who made me do rhinoplasty and uh, transmitted this passion uh, on rhinoplasty. 
and and so that's that's so interesting. Can you remember your first rhinoplasty you ever did? My first rhinoplasty, you mean my first surgery in rhinoplasty? Yes. yes. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I was resident. I was in the Hôpital Saint-Louis in Paris, and it was really the place where someone very famous was has been working because at this time he, he has left the hospital. Uh, his name is Guy Jost. He was really one of the big names of rhinoplasty in France, and he was doing a close rhinoplasty. I won't say the old-fashioned because he brought lots of things, but it was really close reduction rhinoplasty. And when I, to be allowed to operate, we were uh, asked to put all the instruments on the table in the order where we're going to do all the different uh, times of the surgery, all the different, and we were always repeating the same thing on all the patients, you know. Mm. And when we knew exactly all those sequences, we were allowed to begin to do uh, to do rhinoplasty. So the, the first time I was uh, kind of lost in those uh, in the nose. It was very tough, very difficult. But uh, for my first few years uh, of residency, I've learned close rhinoplasty. Uh, even if I was reading books where it was, uh, where lots of things were written about open rhinoplasty, I couldn't practice. I'd say I began to really uh, uh, do my first open rhinoplasty at the end of the residency. At this time, I had the chance to visit also in, in his private practice, Gilbert Hayash, who was really the big name in France for open rhinoplasty. So this is the beginning of, of my rhinoplasty adventure, I will say. Yes. And then tell us the next step in the adventure. How did you get into Piezo? So Piezo is much, much later, of course, um, uh, because I went in private practice in 2000 and began to do more and more rhinoplasty. And probably like all of us, uh, well, I had difficulties in lots of things in rhinoplasty. But one of the main part that was really a mystery for me was the uh, bone surgery, because I wasn't able to see anything. And at this time, if you remember, welcome, we were doing, a, a, well, we were doing low to high surge, uh, osteotomies or, uh, or low to low osteotomies, sometimes medial oblique. In fact, what I've learned is to do mainly high, low, high osteotomy, to push with the fingers on the bone until they break. You know, they are supposed to break in the pass of the least resistance, you know, this famous pass of least resistance, where sometimes you're lucky and it, 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 it moves medially quite well and still stable, but sometimes you're not lucky at all. So either you have to press harder or at the end you use an osteotomy and you create a cumulative fracture so everything drops inside. Mm -hmm. It was really difficult for me to understand where to do the osteotomy, how to do the osteotomy, how to remove the hump. Uh, and so I had difficulties. And at this time, you know, wh when you begin your practice, you have a little more time. That's when you're older and busier. So I had the chance to travel around the world and to visit some of the best masters in rhinoplasty. And what I noticed is that even those surgeons who had lots of experience, when they were doing the osteotomy, they were a little more tensed, I would say. Mm -hmm. Because it was probably, once again, the only part of the surgery that they couldn't really see. So it was more like a filling part of the surgery with some uh, good or sometimes not good outcomes. And uh, I wonder at this time, it was uh, the big, uh, at 
2011, probably 10, 11, how can uh, those masters still have difficulties in this part of the rhinoplasty? And of course, it was not because of them, but probably because of the instruments that were used that were not the best adapted to, to rhinoplasty bone surgery. At this time, uh, in 2011 exactly, I was uh, with, uh, with Enrico Robotti in a meeting in Iran, and I, I, I listened to a lecture of someone. Uh, his name is Mohamed Ganat Pishek. He's not really well known out of Iran, but he's really one of the masters in, in Iran plastic uh, surgery. And he did a lecture, wonderful lecture, on all the bony work in rhinoplasty with mechanical osteotome. But I understood that we really had to take account about all the anatomic variation of the bones because very little was said about this. We, we, we talked a lot about all the type of anatomic variation of shape, position, stiffness of the lower lateral cartilage, for instance, for all the tip work, but not at all on the bones. And uh, so at this time, I understood that it was more complex than I, what I thought. And uh, well, I, I tried to master, uh, understand more bony work and to master it. And I was not good enough. And frankly, I was not good enough to master it with the usual instruments. So uh, at this time, there was few surgeons who were using electric instruments. So I, I began to use electric instruments and it worked, but I could do only part of the surgery with electric instruments. It was very difficult, not to say impossible, to do all the lateral osteotomies and even the, the transverse osteotomies with, with those instruments. So I tried to figure out how to use instruments that were, uh, that gave me the possibility to do all the work on the bones uh, only with one device, not using different type of instruments. Mm -hmm. And I had a friend at this time who is a maxillofacial surgeon, Jean-Paul Menango, who, uh, who was, uh, uh, well, we, we talked about the instrument uh, uh, and I talked also with a company, it was really at the same time, and we were talking about those piezo instruments that I didn't know at all. So I've asked to a, first to a Japanese company, in fact, with whom I've worked for the first year, to design instruments for rhinoplasty, to lend me a, a, a unit and to design instruments for, for rhinoplasty. So we did several prototypes for one year. And then, in fact, I, I changed the company because the, this first company was, was not doing uh, instruments for medical use. It was only for dental use and it, they couldn't do it for medical use. And I wanted really to develop instruments to be used by surgeons. So I worked then with Acteo in 2014 and uh, and so th this is the, the the beginning, in fact, of the uh, adventure to to use those instruments. And I, I had the chance, uh, Cameron, to work, as you know, with a group of friends uh, mm -hmm. in this small group called the IRS, mm -hmm. uh, International Rhinoplasty Research Society. And uh, I remember that the first, so I, I began to to work on on piezo instruments in 2013, and didn't talk about this during one year. I went in in, cadaver, uh, in anatomy lab in Paris and uh, began to work on patients. And then in 2014, exactly after the Bergamo meeting, we went to Nice with all those friends and with Enrico also and other like Hossam, uh, Rick Davis, and we worked on cadaver and I brought those instruments. And it was the first time, in fact, I've wow. used those instruments after having presented the 
those instruments uh, at the Bergamo meeting. And I must say, I was, it was very vexing at the beginning because the, the first instruments were not as efficient as, as the one we're using now. They were much slower. So everyone was very skeptical, I will say, about the instrument, me, me also. Yeah. And, and in fact, at the same time, I have a very good friend, Emmanuel Rassi, uh, who, who was working on those electric instruments, and I invited him to go to Nice also, and he was using those electric instruments. He, he was much faster. So <laughs> I say, I, I have to work more uh, to, to yeah. make those instruments more efficient. But at this time, Cam, the, the difficulty is that everything I was doing was by doing tunnels, even when, uh, by, uh, if I was using open rhinoplasty, I, I, I mean, I've been brought up like all the surgeons on, on the earth, not to undermine the skin on the lateral sidewalls to avoid collapse of the yes. bone. So, of course, I was following this rule, this dogma, and I was spending lots of time doing those osteotomy with uh, instruments I have designed, and it was time-consuming and very difficult to really assess where the osteotomy line was. And in fact, I had to dissect more and more medially and laterally until a moment that it nearly joined the two dissection plane. I don't know if you, you, you mm -hmm. joined them, themselves. And at this time, it was in 2014, I asked all my friends of the group, am I completely crazy if I undermine and deglove completely mm -hmm. the, the nasal uh, bones. And in fact, when we were in Nice, we were removing the skin on the cadaver, doing complete osteotomies, pushing on the bone. And in fact, the bone were not collapsing inside the, the airway. So there was something that we were not aware about underneath that was supporting the bones. And everyone thought that the bone were supported by the, the skin, you know, this very loose skin yeah. above yeah. the bones. But there was probably and surely, and there is for me surely something else, which is the bone support. We, we talk about the cartilage, the tip support, uh, the support of the cartilage, but there is also a bone support from underneath. And when you use those very gentle instruments that are the piezo instruments, you don't, uh, you don't harm those supports from underneath that allow to do safely this wide dissection. When you see things, you know, they have been the first time I believe when people began to do open rhinoplasty, they began to see the anatomy that they could see from underneath with a, a surface assessment of the nose, but then they, they could see the structure and do structural rhinoplasty, open structural rhinoplasty in the 80s, 90s. And, and I think when you can see afterwards the whole bony vault, you have a very different mm -hmm. approach because you can see all the anatomic variation. You can also assess the bone stiffness, the same way, you know, the cartilage have different stiffness and you don't do the same thing. You won't do suture the same way on very flimsy cartilage or on very stiff cartilage. You have exactly the same assessment with piezo instruments and you can really then tailor-made or adapt perfectly the osteotomy and the osteoplasty. Because one thing that piezo has allowed is to do osteoplasty or mm -hmm. rhinosculpture. That means exactly. to remove or to debulk the, the bony vault and you can add when you add osteotomy and osteoplasty it's very very powerful sure that's so exciting now what were some of the challenges with actually designing those instruments mm. well the, the first challenge to say to tell the truth uh, cam is that you must find a company that will invest money 
to develop instruments because you have to go through the R&D and work. And we, we spend lots of time with uh, to go to anatomy lab and to develop different types of instruments. And on, on piezo, it's you really, if you change one thing on the tips, uh, on the piezo tips, they will work or not work. Even one mm -hmm. degree angle make it Wow. make them work very differently. So it was time consuming and, and they had to put money. So I had the chance to find a company because the company who do piezo instruments are doing mainly are working with dentists, as you know, because mm. piezo is used by dentists since the beginning of the 21st century. And dentist is a huge community compared to people doing rhinoplasty. So it was, it's not very cost effective for them to develop instruments for, for rhinoplasty surgeon. So I had the chance to find this company and it was the first main challenge. The, the second challenge afterwards was to develop and to make it accepted by the scientific community, I yes, would say. Yes, so that was my uh, next surgeon. question. How, how did you go about that? Well, I must say that at the beginning, people were skeptical at most, I remember the first years in 2014, 15, where lots of my friends and masters in rhinoplasty were saying, uh, why should we use those instruments? We, we have very good results with our osteotomed rasp and whatsoever. And also lots of criticism about this full upon approach. I mean, lots of people were scared mm. or uh, were very critical about degloving the, the bones. And uh, I had to first prove that it was safe in a way and, uh, and that I could have good long-lasting results. And, um, and secondly, yes, to, to, to develop techniques and to talk about the bone stability. Because I had lots of issues like everyone. When you develop a new technique, new instruments, mm -hmm. you have some bad results. And the main thing that I was fearing at the beginning that I had was instability with bone that I had then to suture back, to re-suture back, to, to, to uh, have a good, uh, well, to avoid defect, to avoid step deformity. This was one of, of the big issues. And I was not understanding everything. Uh, yes, the, 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 fir the, the first moments were, were, were quite tough, but then uh, probably by insisting, by developing the techniques and understanding more the behavior of the bones, I could change the way of doing osteotomies, of doing osteoplasties, and we had more inserts, so we could make it probab uh, probably progressively, sorry, more and more accepted by, by, by people. It's, uh, you know, what, what I used to say at this time to, to my friend is that those instruments are not designed for masters who already can use and have a, a huge experience on the mm -hmm. classical uh, instruments, but more for beginners or people who are average surgeon and who can reach very easily a very good level just mm -hmm. by pressing on a pedal and using uh, instruments and seeing, in fact, what, they're, what they do. Yeah. So well, we're really looking forward to seeing you doing some live surgery at our Congress mm -hmm. in October. So that's still a few months away, but it's going to be fantastic. So one last question in terms of ultrasonic rhinoplasty is, where do you see the future of it going? Well, uh, this year, hopefully, we'll have what uh, I've been developing uh, for for a few years, uh, th those long instruments. Because for people who know piezo surgery, there are some short instruments that are designed for open rhinoplasty and long instruments that are technically more difficult to make for the company. And they have a long rod and they allow to do two things 
closed ultrasonic rhinoplasty and all the septal work. And in fact, there, the necessity of those instruments became really much more important when uh, the uh, preservation rhinoplasty trend emerges mm -hmm. a few years ago, because the difficulty I had with preservation rhinoplasty was to do all this bony work, but also the septal work safely. I mean, I didn't want mm -hmm. to destabilize mm -hmm. the septum. And as you know, there are different types of techniques in dorsal preservation where you have to trim some septum, cartilaginous and bony septum. Mm -hmm. And with the usual instruments, for me, it's very difficult to be accurate and to avoid any risk of septum destabilization, especially I'm using structural rhinoplasty. It's really, so I need quite a significant amount of septum uh, on my rhinoplasty. So I'm not only doing dorsal preservation in the selected case, but I need also to harvest a significant part of septum. And if you're not very gentle with the septal trimming, you can easily have a collapse, wow. which is difficult yeah, to yeah. treat afterward. But, so know? that's very interesting. So you kind of got to marry this the, the ultrasonic rhinoplasty with this resurgence of preservation rhinoplasty at the same time. Before we get into mm -hmm. that, quick question. Because we, we were on to nearly 70 countries where people are listening to the podcast from. How do they, two things, how do they get hold of perhaps training videos or, or um, learning more through, through, through oh. you directly? And the second one, I'll guess, is I'll give the information at the end to, to co contact the suppliers directly. But how do people learn more about using ultrasonic rhinoplasty? Well, there are now more and more videos that uh, are available on the internet. I, I had the chance to do DVDs with uh, uh, QMP. And, uh, and there are some surgeons now everywhere around the world who master uh, well the uh, ultrasonic rhinoplasty techniques. So my advice is really to go and visit those surgeons because it's not just an instrument where that you use. It's really you have to learn... It's very, very quick, by the way, really in one or two sessions, you can very easily master most of the thing in, 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 uh, in ultrasonic rhinoplasty, but really try to see someone who knows how to use those instruments uh, first. It will help you to be very quick in your learning curve and to avoid few defects, like uh, to do the good settings to avoid burning, for instance, because if you don't put for the, the, the water outflow correctly, you may have burning on the bone or on the skin if you don't use well the instruments. So it's it's easy to learn, but go, either you go and see a master or you you, you, buy, you can buy DVDs or go and see awesome. videos. Well, you guys, you'll be seeing the master operating on the about the 28th of October. So make sure mm -hmm. that you, you're uh, online yeah. for some live surgery. Okay, so Olivia, let's move on now slightly. In terms of, I have two questions in terms of preservation rhinoplasty. The one is how that has affected you as a surgeon who's been doing rhinoplasty now for 25 years. But the other one is how has it affected ultrasonic rhinoplasty, this, this resurgence mm. of a preservation rhinoplasty? Well, you know, in, in our group, we have, so we have different surgeons. And one of the surgeons is Yves Sabon. And at the beginning, he was talking about his dorsal preservation was we were in the anatomy lab looking at him and, okay, smiling thing. It's interesting, but it was, well, difficult to move forward and to, because he, as you know, he's doing close rhinoplasty with, uh, with uh, uh, osteotomes. And it, he has a lot of experience. He's a great surgeon, but it's very difficult to 
have the same experience and to be reliable in, in what you do. And we, we want to be reliable and to control what we do. So probably what the piezo instrument helped us to do, people like Goxel, like Milos, uh, like Charles, uh, they, they could really adopt those dorsal preservation techniques because they had those instruments that allowed to be very precise on, on the bone work and to see also what they were doing. So they were able, we were able to do this full degloving and to use piezo instruments to, uh, to do the different type of osteotomy that are uh, required for dorsal preservation. So this is probably what, what helped uh, for, for the development of uh, dorsal preservation. And I must say now for me, especially the, the long instruments for the septal work is also very, very important. Awesome, awesome. So um, what do you find your main challenges in rhinoplasty? The, the main challenge in rhinoplasty is uh, undoubtedly the patient. The patient. <laughs> and it will, it will be until the end. It's really the, I mean, rhinoplasty is challenging, is demanding, and, uh, and I love, it's a passion for all of us. I mean, all the people who do rhinoplasty have the same type of personality, very obsessive and, uh, uh, okay. But what we control the less is our patient patient, the way they react, what is in their mind. Mm. And we all have even the, the best of us uh, issues, mm. which are more patient-related issues and technical issues. And this will always be... I now work really uh, very closely with a psychologist in Paris who is specialized in body image troubles. Wow. And we, we, we talk a lot about this because there are so many symptoms, so many different things that not, not only BDD, people are talking about BDD, but there are lots of other things. And as we know, we have in rhinoplasty so many patients who have lots of psychological, I will say, issues. Yeah. We have to detect them and we, we can help them. I mean, we are physicians and we can help them, not by operating them, but referring them to people yes who are specializing in those troubles. That's fascinating. To hear somebody who's developed ultrasonic rhinoplasty in the preservation, the research, he's saying the biggest challenge is the patient. Very interesting. Mm. So a am I correct in maybe asking you that the latest change in your rhinoplasty practice is this work with a psychologist? Well, it's one of the things, and I, I, I was looking for a long time for a psychologist who was really specialized. In this. There are very few who are in and by chance, I found her and she wrote books about, uh, about BDD, but not only about BDD. And so it, it was, it's one of my <laughs> change now. And I spend a lot of time during my consultation talking with my patient. I've also, thanks to the COVID, now I do video consultation always before the first consultation. And I send a questionnaire, and part of the questionnaire is focused on psychological uh, aspect Excellent. and I've, I've worked with her to, to design questions for, for this so I can screen in a way the patient before and know who I will have uh, face to me when, when the people come uh, in the office, when they, when they come afterwards in the office. And it, it has been a, one of the good aspects of the COVID for me was to, do, to develop those video consultations. Yeah. Uh, I've, developed, I've changed a few technical things in, in rhinoplasty. But uh, I'll show you probably uh, uh, in, in South Africa. Uh, and uh, those few things are also the approach because there are some things also that, you know, we, 
We reproduce without thinking where should we end our dissection, where should we put exactly our di di dissection. So this is one of the things, the, the way of also supporting, you know, the, we, we had the, uh, a session with the IRS a few months ago only on the design of the septal extension graft, uh, the way to put septal extension graft, the way to suture the lower lateral cartilage on septal extension graft. You, we can spend half a day just talking right. about this. You know, I, I use uh, so this is a change I've done a long time ago because I've learned with rolling uh, using colimalostrut and I've used for years and years colimalostrut and they, they work well. Huh? But I had lots of patients where when I saw them afterwards, I had some small uh, loss of projection, loss of definition, lo lots of things that are vexing and that also required to, to do a touch-up afterwards, which we don't want to do. And uh, I've, <laughs> thanks to Dean, thanks to Rick, uh, committed myself to now do nearly always, nearly always uh, septal extension yeah, grafts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but even on the septal extension graft, there are so many subtleties that make mm -hmm. the tip look different the way yeah. you... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so two more questions. The first one, what do you enjoy the most about rhinoplasty? What I enjoy the most about rhinoplasty, well, there are lots of things I enjoy. I, I will say, of course, it's challenging. What, what I enjoy is it's always changing. There are so much variety of cases. It's, it's like a fingerprint a nose. We, we know it. So there, there are so many different types of noses, so many types of requests of patients, so many patients that are different. It's very meticulous. I, I mean, I, I, it's a patient. You know, all, all of us who are doing rhinoplasty, or most of us have this patient. But one other thing that I really enjoy is being able to meet people who have the same patient. We can share the same thing, and it's very specific to rhinoplasty. I'm a plastic surgeon, and I, even if I, I mean, I've, I've, I'm doing now only facial surgery since a long time, but I was not when I was doing all the general plastic surgery, not meeting people who are doing liposuction and passionate about liposuction or <laughs> surgery. But it exists, of course, but uh, yeah. I mean, rhinoplasty is so special and the yeah. people who do rhinoplasty, I, I have lots of friends. I'm, I'm thankful to, to know all those people yeah. thanks to, yeah. to the rhinoplasty. Yeah. No, yes, it's very inspiring. It's so exciting to, to hear and see this excitement that you have. But at the same time, I think What's so important is a little bit of knowledge can be very dangerous. And I mean, you've tried to summarize in half an hour what you've been doing for many, many years. So for the listeners out there who uh, are maybe wanting to go into ultrasonic and some preservation, give us a few things to be careful of. What are some of the pitfalls that in your enthusiasm to want to get good results, you can make mistakes in? Well, I think one of the major thing is to lose the control on what you're doing. I mean, we want to have control on everything in rhinoplasty. And when you begin to uh, do those impaction techniques, you, you, you change um, uh, immobile structure to something that is completely mobile. So you may lose the control on the final position of the bony vault, bony cartilaginous vault, and this is why I, I, I now, and uh, since quite a long time, try to restabilize always. So first, to be very, uh, very cautious on the septum, because if you have some type of septal deviation, you can have lots of 
access issue on, on the on the bony vault and to restabilize to restabilize the, the bony vault by sutures and by grafts that I put in the osseotomy lines. But so the pitfalls is uh, to destabilize. For one thing that I see very frequently coming the, in the secondaries who had preservation rhinoplasty, because I must say that in France, in Europe, I don't know how it's in South Africa, lots of people who are doing preservation rhinoplasty are, I will say, younger than the average surgeon doing rhinoplasty. And they have probably less experience, but those techniques are very demanding, are very challenging, mm. and they require some experience. And one of the very frequent defects I see is that the osteotomy are done very high. So you see the osteotomy line, you have a step which is very high with the base of the bony vault, which is still wide. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's something that it, uh, as it's very high, the bones are less stable. So it's a good thing. If you have less stable bone, you can impact them very easily but you can have after defects that are very difficult to treat. Mm. So those are two of the challenges. There are lots of, lots of challenges in preservation rhinoplasty. Mm. I'm sure that the other friends like Eve, uh, Milos, Goxel will, will, will talk better <laughs> on those issues yeah. than I do. But once again, it's challenging. So you have to go and visit people who master those techniques before doing them. It's very important. In this group of the IRS, we had the chance to go very often to the anatomy lab to try mm. between us those techniques before doing them on, on patients. I mean, it's, it's so important. Absolutely. Yes, well, Olivia, this has just been a fantastic half an hour. I've, I've been just listening to all these words of wisdom. So thank you so much. And, and uh, on behalf of the listeners from around the world, thank you for the work that you guys are doing. Uh, I, you know, we just think, oh, we're just suddenly going to start using a piezo. We don't know how much effort's gone into that, and it's massive. And so genuinely, thank you from all the people around the world. I mean, many of the listeners are in countries that will never have the opportunity of maybe being there and coming to watch you operating in Paris or something like that. So I just wanted to say thank you from, from our side. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you to all of you. And then to the listeners, so the guys who've now listened all the way, you can either just direct message me and I'll give you the details, but I'm going to read out the email address you need to email and you have to say the Rhinoplasty podcast, obviously, to get your 10% discount uh, from the Comeg machine. So you've got to get hold of Richard Maloney and Richard's email is richard.maloney. So that's R-I-C-H-A-R-D dot and Maloney is M-O-L-O-N-E-Y at maloney-medtech.com so that is again at m-o-l-o-n-e-y dash medtech it's m-e-d-t-e-c-h dot com so get a hold of Richard if you are interested in trying to get a cool deal on a machine so that brings us to the end of this episode um, Olivia thank you very much we're looking forward to having you in South Africa and thank I'm you for the immense work you're doing for everybody around the world goodbye